Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're going to take a step back in time to revisit an article written. It was a groundbreaking article by Chuck Carlson, written in 1999. And it was entitled, Missionaries, Mercenaries, Missiles, and Money. It was subtitled, The Untold Story of the War on the Children of Sudan. And I'd like to read the conclusions from the report. The war-maker's objective in which the Clinton administration and the forename NGOs are willful participants appear to be to pull down the Sudanese national government by supporting the insurgents and undermining the government with what amounts to a trade embargo. The stated objective of the insurgents is to capture the oil fields of southern Sudan and then sneak a portioning of the country north and south with separate governments, reminiscent of the Palestine, Korea, and Vietnam solutions. The myth of crucifixion, slavery, heinous persecution of Christians in Sudan, while containing an occasional grain of truth, are largely propaganda aimed at the people of Central Africa and the Arab Middle East, such as Iran and Sudan. And so with this story, uh, you may recall that in 1998, in August, the U.S., at the direction of President Bill Clinton at the time, conducted a attack on a pharmaceutical plant in Sudan, claiming that this plant was making precursors for chemical weapons, which was not proven and uh, destroyed this privately owned plant. This was done because of some terror attacks, according to our president, on the American embassies in Zaire and Tanzania. And with that, of course, there had been the issue of slaves, which became a very big issue with many Christians who, at the time, we didn't we didn't use the term Christian Zionist, but you would, by all accounts today, would consider these people Christian Zionists because they hang around Christian Zionist churches and they're still in business. The slave business is still going on with some of these pastors and organizations, or they've changed to other venues. So, Chuck, let me turn it over to you. And we did this story. At the uh, end, basically, what we thought was the end of the Gulf War against Iraq. And we were presuming and watching and anticipating that our leaders were preparing another war for us. And it seemed very likely at that time, based upon events that were going on, that we would actually end up following through on economic sanctions and other actions against the government of Sudan and actually attack Sudan. In fact, that didn't happen. What happened instead was that an insurgency group called the Sudan People's Liberation Army came from the south into Sudan and basically stole a major part of the oil field that Sudan had 
developed and discovered and that was just starting to pump oil or just ready to pump oil at that time. So what went on is there was a war for oil. The theft of the oil fields were accomplished without bombing Sudan. Instead, uh, we were uh, catapulted a year or two later into day 9-11. And then that, of course, led us directly into Afghanistan. So we leaped from Iraq to Afghanistan and forgetting all about Sudan. But at the time we did this, it looked very much like we were being set up for war on Sudan, just the way we had been set up for war against Iraq. Uh, Sudan, of course, being an pathetically weak military. I believe uh, the Sudan military air force consisted of three surplus cargo planes. That was the air force and maybe one helicopter or something like that. So Sudan really was not, a, it was even a less worthy foe than Saddam Hussein would have been. But in the process of a softening Sudan up so that it could be taken from beneath and taken from the south, this uh, process of vilifying the Muslims of Sudan was front page news in 1998, 1997, 1999, and so on. It was uh, the story of how the Sudanese government was persecuting Christians. And in order to, to make the story work, they spun incredible yarns that were totally untrue. One of those yarns was that North Sudan was populated by Arabs uh, who were viciously oppressing the black Christians who lived in southern Sudan. Of course, this was totally untrue. In 1997, someone who became a friend of ours, he was a state legislator from Philadelphia, and he got interested in this. His name was Harold James, and he got permission to make a trip to Sudan, and he, he was shocked when he got there. Uh, James himself was black. And he came back and he said, they're all black. I expected to see Arabs in Arab headdresses everywhere persecuting poor black slaves. And I found out everybody in Sudan is black. He had a very comfortable time and actually liked the people in Sudan and found himself liking the government and thinking they were really doing their best against an insurgency that was trying to steal their, their basic natural resource. Another effort to, to vilify the Sudanese was the incredible dream of slavery. Now, nothing turns the heart of an American more than knowing that somebody has been taken a slave. And so a scheme was concocted that's now pretty much going the way of the dodo bird. But at that time, it was the scheme that the, the government of Sudan was busy using uh, slaves, and they for these slaves, they were going to the south where the Christians were, but they really weren't. And they were uh, capturing thousands of these uh, innocent Christians in southern Sudan and converting them into slaves. Now, this then led to one of the most outrageous con games that we've ever seen, and that was the scheme that got Christians in America to start buying these slaves. Now, of course, you couldn't actually take delivery of a slave, uh, so what they were really doing is buying the freedom of slaves. And there was so much money being raised to buy the freedom of slaves that they bid the price of slaves all the way down to $35 per slave. So uh, you could put up a, a, a check at your local Southern Baptist church if they participated in the, in the program. And, and I don't know that Southern Baptist churches did. I didn't know any that did. But a lot of independent churches 
did, and people bought literally thousands of slaves. One example took place in 1997. This went on several years before it was discovered, and we even had to discover it. One school teacher in metropolitan Denver, Colorado, heard about slavery in southern Sudan. She told her sixth grade class about it. I don't know what they did to steam up the parents, but the kids all went home, and the parents all coughed up money. And before they were through, they, they were in the five figures of raising money to buy slaves in Sudan in a, in a grade school class in Denver, Colorado. So it was a mania. Uh, what really happened, of course, is that the slave trade turned out to be nothing but a photo op where they staged what looked like a slave exchange. And a large mission organization called Christian Solidarity International made a fortune and a business out of marketing slaves wholesale through churches. And they're still doing it, by the way. The leader of Christian Solidarity International was uh, Caroline Cox, who represented herself as British royalty. And they got an airplane and they would fly illegally into southern Sudan, uh, which, of course, at that time was all Sudan. And they would land the plane on an airstrip near a, a village. And the villages were in the area of Juba in southern Sudan, if you want to look at your map. And uh, then they would have prearranged with certain individuals. And it turned out the individuals who were uh, the, uh, trading in the slaves were actually the insurgent army that was trying to take over the oil fields. So to make a little side money, they would uh, pretend to be slave traders, dress up in Arab costumes with headdresses, and uh, they would stage a show where as many as 100 people would be rounded up, uh, ropes put around their necks and on their ankles, men and women, children, all look, making them look like they were all tied together, and they'd photograph them under a banyan tree or whatever trees they have in southern Sudan. And then those pictures of those movies of this, uh, of this uh, heartwarming event where these people were all turned loose and the ropes were taken off and they were patted on the back and the slave traders departed with a handful of $100 bills. This went on for uh, several years and actually became a major business, a major fundraising industry in uh, schools in the United States. Now, can you imagine anything more bizarre than that? I have examples of this, other examples of this that we actually in, engaged in. And it's quite possible that we were the only independent group that was trying to expose us. We didn't find many other people that seemed to care about what was going on there. They just didn't get the notion that Christians were being built out of their money in the local churches in order to buy non-existent slaves. All of this was done for the purpose of discrediting the government of Sudan so their oil could be stolen. Now, Tom... And listeners, does that sound familiar to you? Do you hear? Are you hearing anything in the wind today that sounds bizarre? Anything nearly as bizarre, but maybe not that bizarre. But is there anything so strange going on today that we have to look at? Well, yes, of course. There's ISIL, the, uh, or ISIS, or ICE in uh, Syria and Iraq. And the rest of the story, I think, is kind of interesting. In Sudan today, of course, is it was split in two. But prior to uh, when you wrote this, a civil war had been going on for, uh, I think, 20 years or more. And there's a civil war going on now, as we speak, in southern uh, Sudan. And so the government in North Sudan now, in, in the, the old Sudan, 
is you know, kind of out of the picture in a way. They're trying to protect their interests for their pipelines because they control the pipelines from the oil fields. And its history repeats itself here over and over again. And at the time, we weren't sure if maybe this was going to be the place where they would have a war. But at that same time, they were bombing the pharmaceutical plant. Uh, Bill Clinton, there were raids against Afghanistan fully two years before 911. And again, that was for retribution. They said it was protection from terrorist acts because of the attacks on the American embassies. So it does seem that history repeats itself. I think the slave trading method of discrediting the country was one of the most bizarre and, and brilliant and brazen. Three Bs. Brazen. How, how much more brazen can you get than freeing slaves that never were slaves, raising money in American churches to do it, splitting it with the insurgent army, and discrediting the government who's trying to keep law and order in the country and who owns the oil in the first place, who actually yes. developed the oil and who built the pipeline, uh, along, of course, with investors who they managed to raise. All of this is almost too strange to believe. And uh, there were organizations that were quite respected that got involved in this. Just to show you that we're not really kidding, one church in Coral Gables, Florida, was one of the most well-known Presbyterian churches in the country. It was called Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And uh, the pastor there was a very famous man named D. James Kennedy. He'd become old, and I believe he died at the time they actually began buying slaves. But we were told by uh, a director of the church who knew us and called us to tell us and share this in frustration with us that he couldn't convince the church otherwise. They insisted in going ahead with this, and it turned out to be the most successful one fundraiser they'd ever had. They literally raised a small fortune by sending a few dollars to a mail-order missionary on an airplane, and the money didn't free a single slave because there never was a slave. It simply was passed on to this revolutionary army part of it, and the rest of it kept by the slave wholesaling organization, which uh, we previously mentioned was Christian Solidarity International. Uh, there were others that were thought to be involved in similar efforts that actually tried to compete with Christian Solidarity International. One of those was called Voice of Martyrs. Voice of Martyrs had earned its reputation in the Cold War as being anti-communist and trying to help people who had been persecuted in communist countries. But they simply leaped from being against communist countries to being against Arab countries. They changed their whole spiel, and the next thing you know, Voice of Martyrs was busy looking for martyrs in Arab countries that had been martyred by Arab sheiks, and uh, they ended up in the, in the slave wholesaling business in Khartoum. So it was like a giant magnet drawing the gullible and the greedy to Sinan and doing their part to destroy a government and, of course, destroy life for the people who were trying to live in this place that was completely torn apart by that civil war that Tom was talking about. And it was not a civil war. It was a war of insurgency. The SPLA definitely was financed from outside. Israel was thought to have a hand in the financing. And uh, for it, Israel got promises of oil. But the whole effort was very similar to what we have seen in Iraq, 
what's been attempted against the government of Iran, what has happened to the poor people of Afghanistan. Uh, we've also bombed uh, some, I don't know, nine or ten other Arab countries, including Sudan, at one time or another. So discredit, dehumanize, destroy, and then take what's theirs is really what's happening in these countries. And who's next is the question. And as Tom pointed out, we've done several programs on ISIL, which stands for Islamic State in Levant. What's also interesting, Chuck, in the case of Sudan, we've seen this repeatedly, is the fact that the United States put embargoes on on poor little Sudan. But it was it, to me, it's kind of a, a telling. They made one exception, and that exception was because we didn't have any other good sources. So they didn't put a sanction on gargum, which is a thickening agent, which comes from Sudan, one of the major sources for it. So they still applied these sanctions, as we've seen in places like Iran, now Russia. And so it typically what these sanctions do, of course, is hurt the, the, the people. Right. Uh, so... That, uh, um, but are, sanctions are, are, are on Iran are hurting Iran. We now have sanctions against Russia, very telling sanctions against Russia, and these are, are designed basically to destroy. So this ongoing effort of making war is not going away. Sudan has uh, paid its price, and the people there, of course, have suffered. And, uh, and, and now we're seeing the rise of ISIL, and we're seeing this being pointed out to us as a international threat. Here we have a movement that we never heard of a year ago. And uh, what we're finding out as we go along is uh, more and more is that ISIL basically is a mercenary army. And a mercenary army, of course, runs on money. The way you get a mercenary is you pay him. You cannot tell a mercenary a, a good lie and get him to work for you. That's just not the way mercenaries work. And today I heard a Professor Milani, who is a student of this, uh, of ISIL, among other things, he spoke uh, to the uh, Denver University Foreign Affairs Department. They had a crowd there to listen to him. He's from uh, South Florida State University. Vast experience in the Middle East, especially in, in Iran. And he tells us that, as best he can tell, there are approximately 10,000 Western participants, Western mercenaries, who are now working for ISIL. Now, 10,000 is a fair-sized army. And by my arithmetic, if you paid those 10,000 mercenaries who, come, who are coming from England, they're coming from France, they're coming from Germany, the United States, various places in the Middle East, but if you paid them the same scale that U.S. military contractors pay their agents, that would cost approximately $220 million per month. You might get by for half of that if you uh, recruit people who can get by on a, uh, on a measly eight or $9,000 a month, in which case it would only cost about $110 million a month. So you figure that uh, ISIL has been uh, grinding away here for how long? Three months, Tom? You've, you've, Over that, you've yeah. done uh, maybe uh, that, we, that we've had, it's been prominent with us for three or four or five months. We're talking about a billion dollar budget just for mercenaries. 
Now, where is ISIL getting the billion dollars to put up to hire mercenaries? This doesn't count the black shirts that they all wear. My friend and wife would like to know where they get the money for the black shirts. <laughs> and uh, how about the airplanes and tanks? Well, they steal those from the U.S. They've basically gone into places in, in Iraq where the U.S. has been and has had huge armament buildups, and they've been left behind in depots with scanty guards. And Israel has found out where they are, come in and taken over those depots and is driving our military equipment. So that answers a lot of the military equipment problem. But the bottom line that uh, the college professor today didn't answer, and uh, by the way, I've been to several of these meetings with very bright people who have all kinds of knowledge of the Middle East and, and the way it works and can tell you who's on whose side and who, is, who Hezbollah likes and who doesn't like Hezbollah and on and on. But one thing that uh, nobody ever answers is where is this money coming from? Now, I got to tell you that there have been some phony answers, and these are the answers you don't want to believe. Have you heard this one? ISIL gets their money by capturing oil fields and running them and then black marketing the oil to friendly Arabs. Have you heard that one? No. Now, this supposes that an oil field runs itself, that it's like a water fountain out in the desert or an artesian well somewhere. And all you have to do is uh, walk in, chase away the operator, uh, hook onto your, your pipe onto his spigot, and you get oil. Oil don't work that way. Producing oil is a sophisticated business. And, of course, one bomb in the middle of an, of an oil well puts the whole thing in fire, on fire, as we witnessed in the, the Gulf War in 1991, when uh, the whole oil fields of Kuwait were all ignited, and there were how many? Something, there are literally hundreds of oil wells burning at one time. So the, the idea, don't believe the idea that ISIL simply is borrowing other people's oil refineries and other people's oil wells and is selling, uh, selling the uh, gasoline or uh, the crude oil through uh, channels because it ain't easy to sell oil. There is a network for oil sales today. It's called OPEC or others. And uh, you can't just drive a truck anywhere in Iraq and back up to an oil well and fill it up and drive away. It just isn't that simple. The argument is, is completely ridiculous. And if you ask any oil person, he'll tell you that. You might as well say they milk goats and sell the milk to fund ISIL. It doesn't make sense. ISIL is funded by somebody with a big payroll and with lots of money. Literally billions are going into it. Has to be. Can't be, can't be run with less. Four, uh, four schoolgirls were recruited over the Internet to join ISIL from the city of Denver, Colorado in the last six months. So this is going on all the time. What Professor Milani told me when I approached him privately in a very friendly way afterwards and let him know my sympathies for the people of Iran. He told me confidentially, Saudi Arabia is the leading funder of ISIL. I know it. And I said, why didn't you say it? He says, I can't say it publicly because I can't prove it. Well, in all due respect for wonderful Professor Milani, there wasn't a thing today he said that he could prove. Everything was his opinion. That's what professors and academicians give you, is their best opinion based upon some evidence. But proof is never there, and nobody proves really anything. What he did say, of course, is that Syria is a natural 
enemy of the United States, a natural friend of Iran. Saudi Arabia is a, he said, a natural friend of the United States and a natural enemy of Iran. So he told us who's on whose side, but when it came down to telling us who's funding ISIL, he, he, he wouldn't really tell anyone until he got me in private. And then he told me in all enthusiasm and great confidence that it's Saudi Arabia that's, that's leading the funding. And I said to him, well, if that's the case, if Saudi Arabia is our best ally, and, and that's what he did say today, and Saudi Arabia is funding our enemy, doesn't that really mean that we are funding our own enemy? And he smiled and said, certainly does. So if you look at what's going on now in ISIL, we have a sort of a brand new replay of uh, the slave scheme. We got the mysterious, instead of having the mysterious slaves, uh, we have the mysterious organization that is, uh, that is, that's carrying out war against us and is threatening our very institutions right here in the United States. ISIL is a danger to us because they have the ability to recruit enormous numbers of mercenaries who hate us. Isn't that interesting? But nobody ever says where the money comes from. Tom? Well, thanks. I think that was a good insight. Of course, the United States creates its own enemies. We've talked about this in varying and imaginative ways. It is most interesting to us, and we hope that anyone listening will look into this. If you're not uh, convinced, do some checking on your own, because we're going down a slippery path path here in the U.S., our empire, we ask the question all the time, well, how long can we sustain these kinds of activities? We didn't even mention Libya, for example. We liberated uh, Libya, so to speak, and uh, did away with Gaddafi, and now there's a civil war uh, going on there, and we kind of ignore the atrocities that are going on in that country. So we're just leaving uh, one more, one after another basket cases, if you will, that keep creating more enemies for us. We urge you to go back and reread Missionaries, Mercenaries, Missiles, and Money. Think of it as uh, happening right today in, in ISIL. And take a look at the lesson that you can learn from the past. This is the very recent past about our own faults and errors and, of course, the total destruction that we're bringing upon innocent people who haven't done anything at all to deserve it. Okay, well, thanks very much, Chuck, for that very, very interesting report. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small. Think big and press on towards the straight gate.